The Mayday Murders is copyright 2005 by Scott Wittenberg. To learn more about this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Chapter 4 Sam knew that Roger was pissed off at him, and he couldn't really blame him. After all, he was off-duty today, and midway through a bottle of Jack Daniels, when he had called the lieutenant to set up a time to go over to the Bradley house. What really had irked his friend was the fact that the Bradleys were to be allowed to return to their home tomorrow morning, which meant that in order to comply with Sam's request, they would have to go over there this evening. No doubt the last thing Roger Hackstrom wanted to be doing in his present state of inebriation. Sam had asked Roger why the police were surrendering the Bradley house now, all of a sudden, and he had replied that the investigation of the murder scene was officially completed. The house had already been dusted for prints and gone over with a fine-toothed comb, so there simply wasn't anything left to do there. And besides that, he had added dryly, Dave Bradley did have a right to live in his own home. Sam told Roger that he'd pick him up at 5.30, and as he pulled into the driveway of his friend's two-story frame house, he wondered what kind of shape Detective Haxtrom would be in by now. He pulled up beside the house and laid on the horn. A moment later, Roger emerged from the front door carrying a glass in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Roger Haxtrom was short and stocky, with rusty brown hair, wore a two-day-old stubble, wrinkled khakis, and a ragged Kent State sweatshirt, as he lumbered over to Sam's jeep and opened the door. Yo, Roger greeted as he climbed in. He wasn't blasted yet, Sam thought to himself. Yo, Rog, sorry about interrupting your bliss, he said, throwing the gearshift lever into reverse. Fuck it, Roger growled good-naturedly. Nothing else shaking anyway. Just another drunk day in this sleepy old burg. Sam turned his head and watched carefully as he backed out of the narrow driveway and onto the street. It's been pretty lively around here this past week or so, you've got to admit. Roger nodded. True, but socially speaking, let's face it, this town's the skids. Sam smiled knowingly. No shit. You want a taste? Roger asked, proffering his glass of straight Jack Daniels. No thanks. Too early for me, Sam replied. Did you make it to the funeral home today? Yeah, I went this afternoon. Just missed you guys, as a matter of fact. Only stayed a couple of minutes, though can't stand that depressing shit. I know what you mean. Dave sure looked rough, didn't he? Roger nodded. Yep, I really feel for the guy. Marcia was one hell of a lady. She really loved that kid, too. Sure hope the little tyke snaps out of it. What's the latest on Tommy, anyway? Sam inquired. Have you heard anything new? He's still got a zipper on his lips, and that's all I know. No one really wants to bother either of them now, so the shrinks backed off for the time being. Any chance he'll come around soon? Sam asked as he pulled onto Coles Boulevard and headed west. Hope so. Otherwise, I don't think we have an ice cube's chance in Hades of catching this bastard, Roger said, the exasperation evident in his voice. Sam reached into his jacket, pulled out a Marlboro, and pushed in the cigarette lighter in the same motion. Anne has taken this really hard, as you can imagine. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm sort of glad she's living out of town right now. I'm not so sure she'll be able to hang around here and keep her sanity with all the reminders of Marcia staring her in the face all the time. Anne's pretty sensitive anyway, as well you know, and it's probably best that she's where she is for the time being. Out of sight, out of mind. Something like that. I sure do miss her, though, Sam added, his tone of voice somber. He lit up his cigarette and slowed down for a stop sign. 
I know you do, man, Roger said sympathetically, but you can't spend the rest of your life pining for her. You need to get out once in a while, buddy. At least get laid, if nothing else. Sam grinned sardonically. Sort of a slim market out there for that, don't you think? Roger guffawed. <laughs> Pretty fucking lame, I admit. This bachelor's been stalking these hills for a coon's age, and ain't never seen times as lean as they are nowadays. All the decent chicks blow out of this burg as soon as they graduate high school anymore. Sam chuckled at Roger's hillbilly-inflected accent and said, Can't really blame him, can you? Nope. Sam swung a ride on the Tyndall Drive and drove a couple blocks until he spotted Oak Ridge Court. He turned left on the Oak Ridge and slowed down, observing the handful of impressive stately houses situated on either side of the cul-de-sac. All the two- and three-story homes were surrounded by huge sprawling grounds, meticulously landscaped, and set back a good thirty or forty yards from the street. Sam drove the length of the court and pulled up the long winding driveway leading to Dr. David Bradley's house. The enormous brick and wood bi-level was awesome, complete with a heated swimming pool off to the right and the rear. Towering spruce trees lined either side of the grounds, forming a natural boundary before giving way to the foothills behind that afforded privacy from the neighboring houses. Dave's dental practice has been good to him, Roger quipped acidly as Sam pulled up to the three-car garage and parked. No doubt, Sam replied. He turned off the engine and reached for his camera lying on the floorboard. You aren't really going to take any pictures, are you? Roger asked, his expression incredulous. Sam grinned over at him. Of course I am. The lighting should be perfect this time of day. Roger shook his head slowly and opened the door. Why do I have a funny feeling these aren't going to show up in Monday's paper? I may surprise you this time, Sam said as he got out. They strode across the driveway and up the walk leading to the front porch. Sam headed straight across the front yard until he was directly in front of the house. Roger looked on impatiently as Sam peered through the camera viewfinder, made a few quick adjustments, then snapped a couple of shots from slightly varying angles. He then walked over to the east side of the house, near the pool, and took a few more shots before continuing around to the back. A few minutes later, he returned and joined Roger, who was still standing on the front porch, tossing the key up in the air and catching it. "'Get some good ones?' he asked with more than a trace of sarcasm in his voice. Sam leered at him indifferently. "'Just keeping everything honest, buddy. What would the department think about this special privilege you're giving your journalist friend if he didn't follow through with what he was supposed to be doing?' "'It wouldn't give a flying fuck,' Roger replied, deadpan, and unlocked the front door and stepped inside. As Sam followed behind, he felt that same eerie, indescribable sensation he always had whenever he was in the proximity of where death had raised its ugly head. And even though he knew that Marcia Bradley's body was now buried six feet underground in a cemetery plot, he could still sense her presence inside the house the moment he entered it. They stood in the ornate, marble-tiled foyer, and Sam looked around. To his immediate right was the living room, the staircase leading to the second floor straight ahead. To his left the den. It was enormous and resembled an amusement arcade more than anything else, with its full-size Brunswick pool table, pinball machine, and big-screen television. The Bradleys had only recently moved there last winter, a couple of months before he and Anne had been divorced. Before the shit had hit the fan, he and Anne had come to their housewarming party and were given the grand tour. Well, here we are, Roger announced, making a sweeping gesture with his arm. Where would you like to begin? Sam nodded toward the stairs. Up there. I want to see the closet where Tommy was locked up. This way, sir, Roger said as if he were the butler. Sam followed him up the stairway and halfway up, Roger called over his shoulder. Want to hear my theories thus far? 
"'Shoot,' Sam replied. "'After weighing all the evidence, which is minimal, as you know, "'and taking into consideration all the clues we have to go on, "'which are about nil, here's what I think may have happened. "'The murderer got into the house, either by stealth through a door or window, "'or perhaps by a reluctant and or coerced invitation from Marcia Bradley herself. "'How he got in isn't that relevant at this point. "'He got in somehow.' It's quite evident that once he was inside, he quickly took control of the situation by the use of force, immediately threatening Marsha in some way, most likely with a weapon of some kind, probably a gun. Otherwise, Marsha would have had time to call 911, flee the house, or at least do something. Are you with me so far? Yeah, I'm with you, Sam replied. They reached the upstairs hallway, and Roger led them past the master bedroom and bathroom to Tommy's bedroom. It was large by any standard especially taking into account that Tommy was only a five-year-old child. Sam followed Roger across the room, past the twin beds, through the array of toys, Nintendo video games, and every conceivable type of sports gear known to the Western world that were scattered everywhere on the floor. Did your men make this mess? Nope. We just rearranged the shit. Tommy obviously has a problem with putting his toys away, Roger replied. Anyway... The murderer forced Marcia and Tommy into this bedroom, or it's possible that Tommy had already been in here taking a nap or whatever. Either way, the suspect threw the little tyke into this closet and locked the door. Roger went through the motions of opening the door, throwing an imaginary person into the closet, then closing and locking the door as he spoke. Sam stared questioningly at the button-type lock on the doorknob and said, I wonder why the hell this door even has a lock on it. Not much sense in that, any way you look at it. I mean... Who in the fuck would want to lock their belongings inside a closet? It's not like the shit's going to go anywhere. Roger grinned expectantly at him. I wondered the exact same thing myself. So I mentioned it to Dave, and he told me that the closet and bedroom doors were accidentally switched when the workers were painting the interior of the house. He said that he'd meant to switch them back, but they had never gotten around to it. That's why the closet has a lock on it. Sam opened the door and peered inside. The closet was very small and very cluttered. He pictured a terrified Tommy Bradley stuffed inside this dark, cramped space, unable to escape, while his mother was being raped and murdered, and suddenly understood why the child was traumatized beyond speech. He closed the door and asked, Why didn't the bastard simply kill Tommy, too, instead of letting him live, and possibly risk being identified by him? Roger replied, There are several possible options. One is... Maybe the creep didn't have the heart to murder an innocent, defenseless little kid. After all, Marcia is who he wanted, so he might have figured why needlessly kill a child. Furthermore, we still don't know if Tommy even saw the guy, and even if he had seen him, it's possible that the murderer could have been wearing a ski mask or something to hide his face. There's also the possibility they intended to kill Tommy after doing Marcia in, but had gotten scared off by something, or someone, maybe even Dave, before he could follow through with it. Who knows? Anyway, Roger continued, the crux of my theory is the fact that the murderer used Tommy as his leverage, his ace in the hole. He simply told Marcia that if she didn't do as he said, he would kill her son. That would explain why she hadn't put up a struggle. Her son's life was at stake, and what mother wouldn't do everything in her power to prevent her kid from being harmed. It also suggests that Marcia didn't necessarily have to know her assailant, thus squelching the notion that she might have been having an extramarital affair. What do you think? Sam took a flash attachment out of his coat pocket and slid it onto the camera's hot shoe. I think it's a hell of a lot of speculation, was his reply. 
He made his way back to the doorway, looked through the viewfinder, then zoomed the lens out to its widest angle and snapped the shutter. Let's go back downstairs. Don't you want to check out any of the other rooms up here? Roger asked. Not particularly. Everything else happened downstairs, didn't it? That we're pretty sure of. Don't you think it's a little strange that Marcia Bradley's assailant chose the kitchen to rape her in, instead of one of the bedrooms? Roger said, leading the way out of the bedroom. I think all this is a little strange, to be quite honest, Sam replied. I'm still having trouble with the murderer locking Tommy up in that closet. Think about it, Rog. What are the odds of this bastard making a lucky guess that Tommy's closet is the only room in the house that can be locked and unlocked only from the outside? I've been through this house before, and I'm pretty sure that all the doors, including the bedrooms and bathrooms, lock only from the inside, just as they are intended to. Yet the killer seemed to miraculously know right where to put little Tommy to keep him out of the way. Roger paused at the top of the stairs and glanced back at Sam. What are you driving at? I'm not sure, really. Except it's starting to look more and more like the murderer knew the layout of this house pretty damn well, and in fact, seemed to know a whole hell of a lot about everything. I think he might have not only planned this whole thing out carefully in advance, but that he also thoroughly cased the house out prior to the night of the murder from the inside. It's got to be either that, or he's been a guest here at some point in time, and most likely more than just once. Hackstrom shrugged his shoulders and started down the stairs. Could be. You're right about the locks. Even the door to the basement has a two-way lock, which I thought was a little odd, I might add. But it wouldn't have been very hard for the perp to notice the lock on Tommy's closet door when... Come on, Roger, Sam interrupted. I don't care how calm and cool this asshole might have been. The odds of him just happening to notice that there was a lock on that door are slim to nil. Imagine the scenario you've just presented. He's got a weapon of some kind, a gun, pointed at Marcia, and a kid he has to get out of the way, quickly, because Tommy is probably already screaming and carrying on when he sees a stranger threatening his mom's life. Let's even suppose that the three of them are in Tommy's room, with a fucking light on, no less. That closet door is in the far corner of the room with a little button on the doorknob facing away from the entrance and is completely obscured from view by a dresser standing against the wall adjacent to it. The only way the killer could have possibly seen that little lock button would be for him to stand directly in front of the closet. Do you really think that he would sashay all the way across the room through all that shit scattered around the floor just to see if the closet door, by chance, had a goddamn lock on it? Why would he even bother to? Nobody locks their shit up in a closet. Roger grinned at him, visibly impressed. Okay, Sherlock. Or is it Watson? You've just made an interesting observation. Something I've overlooked, I must admit. It must be that photographic eye of yours, I reckon. But what does this all mean, may I ask, if you're right? Sam reached the foot of the stairs and watched Roger as he took another sip of Jack Daniels. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that the whole thing was premeditated to the letter T, and I don't think Marsha's murderer was a stranger. I think he was a local man. Sam could tell by the way Roger was eyeing him that he wasn't buying the last part. Hmm, was all he said before turning and making his way into the living room. Sam followed him over to where Marsha's body had been found, lying on the living room floor near the sofa. The police had removed the black tape outline of her body, but he could still see the exact location and her body position, clearly in his mind from viewing the police photos. Her nude body had been lying spread-eagle on the carpet just to the left of the sofa, her head not far from the end table. Sam stood where he was and surveyed the living room, which was enormous, like every other room in the house. 
There were two doorways besides the one leading to the foyer, one to his left in the corner, which led into the kitchen, and one to the right of the sofa, which led into the study. Roger had already gone into the kitchen and awaited him in the doorway. Do you want to see where the rape took place? he asked Sam. Sam nodded. Okay. He strode over and entered the kitchen. Roger led him over to the island in the center and pointed to a spot on the floor. This is where he did the deed. Marcia's clothes were placed neatly on this counter. Yet another indication that she had been quite cooperative with this bastard. None of her clothes were torn or even wrinkled, just placed on the counter here in a tidy little pile. We suspect that her assailant told her to remove them since there wasn't any evidence that he had done it for her. How do you know he raped her here? Sam asked. We found pubic hair and small traces of semen right here on the floor and nowhere else in the house. The housekeeper had just cleaned and put fresh sheets on the beds earlier that day, which made our work a lot easier, he added. Sam looked around the kitchen, stared down at the cold linoleum floor, and wondered the same thing Roger had. Why here of all places? Roger resumed. My guess is that he ordered Marcia to face the counter, place her hands on it like so, then proceeded to enter her from the rear. We'd found fresh fingerprints, Marcia's, where she'd grasped the overhang of the counter, so that pretty much corroborates that theory. Sam found it hard to conceive that Marcia Bradley could allow this to happen without putting up some resistance. Either she was the most iron-willed woman imaginable, or there was more to all this than meets the eye. As a matter of fact, none of this was making much sense the more he thought about it. After he was done in here, Roger resumed, Marcia's assailant apparently ordered her to go into the living room. Why the living room is anyone's guess. At any rate, not long afterwards, he strangled her to death. Again, from behind. How did he know she was strangled from behind? The coroner's report. He determined from the angle and size of the wound on her neck, along with all that other technical shit, that the murder weapon had been a fairly thin cord of some kind, about the same gauge as an ordinary lamp cord, that had been pulled around her neck from behind, suggesting that she was unaware of what the killer was doing, like she was taken by surprise, Sam said. Exactly. You're really catching on to all this police work, Watson. I'm proud of you. Sam forced a weak smile, but for the moment had lost his sense of humor. There was one thing about Roger Hackstrom that he found annoying at times, and it was one of the reasons he was there right now with him at the Bradley house. He didn't know if it was the effects of alcoholism or just plain lethargy, but his friend had a real problem with following through on things. He'd seen it happen on a few occasions before, when he had tagged along with Roger during an investigation. If a crime wasn't solved quickly and easily, he tended to just give it up, or simply let it get away from him. It wasn't intentional, of course. It just seemed to sort of happen that way sometimes. But this wasn't an auto theft or a burglary. This was a murder case, and the victim just happened to be a very close friend of his wife's. He was going to lean on Roger Hackstrom all the way through this investigation until the murderer was caught and convicted, even if it strained their friendship in the process. How long was the murderer in the house? Sam asked. Roger sipped and replied, It's hard to say exactly. Dave left at 6.30 to go to Matt Timmons and returned at about 9.50. The autopsy indicates that the time of death was between 8 and 8.30. My guess is that he didn't stay long, just long enough to get Tommy out of the way, rape Marcia and strangle her, all of which could have taken between 15 minutes and half an hour, depending on how quickly he worked, if you know what I mean. Tack that time onto her approximate time of death, 
and that would put him in the house somewhere between the hours of 7.45 and 8.30. Again, a lot of speculation, I see, Sam said. What about the lipstick and the message he left? Where did he get the lipstick, anyway? Roger said. From Marcia's purse. We know that for a fact. Her purse was found opened, lying on the end table on the other side of the sofa. That was one of the first indications that the killer wasn't interested in taking anything, because all of Marcia's credit cards and money, around 150 bucks in cash, was untouched. Dave confirmed that the lipstick was hers, and that she always carried it in her purse. Is that where Marcia normally kept her purse? Sam inquired. I knew you were going to ask that. The answer is no, it isn't. And yes, I've already asked Dave where she usually kept it. No doubt your next question. She usually kept it on the dining room table. Now, go ahead and say what I think you're going to say. Sam was undaunted by Roger's brashness. That definitely strengthens my theory, doesn't it? The dining room table is completely out of sight from the living room and the kitchen. The killer would never have spent precious time searching for a tube of lipstick after having just murdered Marcia and no doubt wanting to split the scene ASAP. But he didn't have to, because he already knew where Marcia kept her purse, which indicates that her assailant knew this house and Marcia's habits quite well. She had to have known this bastard, Raj. Either that, or he sure did a bang-up job of casing out this house and its occupants before coming here that night to carry out his crime. Roger drained the last of his Jack Daniels and stared at Sam. I'm actually starting to think you may be absolutely right, buddy. You're making me a believer. The question now is, which is it? And either way, whichever it is, we still don't have jack shit to go on. Sam sighed. I realize that, but it does give us a little insight into this prick. We know that he's a clever son of a bitch beyond question, not to mention meticulous. That's a fact, Roger agreed. What about the message? Any guesses? Roger shook his head. Nope. Mayday. The only thing that comes to mind is the international distress call for help. In the first of May, that spring celebration or whatever the fuck it is, the killer's writing of that on Marcia's tits after killing her makes no sense at all in light of the former. She was already beyond help. The first of May could be significant, though. But in what way? Who the fuck knows? Nope, buddy. That's got me completely stymied. Still think he could be a serial killer? Sam asked. Fuck if I know. I'll tell you the truth, and I've been saying it all along. Until Tommy Bradley talks to us, we're just pissing in the wind on this case. All we have is a bunch of goddamn theories and two items of physical evidence. Hair and cum. Big deal. We don't even have a concrete motive yet, unless we want to believe that this was sheer rape and murder for the fucking fun of it. Something for some sick ass to do on a lonely Wednesday evening. We need that kid to talk, Sam. That's all there is to it. Which could be weeks from now, you've been informed. What are you going to do in the meantime, Roger? Sam asked purposefully, just to put him on the spot. Roger felt the pressure and looked at his friend determinedly. Well, we're going to have to ask some people some more questions, for one thing. Canvas the neighbors again, just in case they've recalled something that might have slipped their minds when we last spoke to them. We'll check and see if there have been any reports of prowlers in the 20-block radius of this neighborhood in the last couple of weeks, too. And it looks like I'm going to have to ask Dave some painfully personal questions about his wife, which I really hate to do. Find out if she was truly as faithful to him as he's been leading us to believe, and ask him if she's ever had any opportunities to play around on him that he can think of. He's probably going to hate my ass for doing it, but we've got to check out every possibility, eh, buddy? Sam grinned, pleased to hear that his friend wasn't going to let him down. 
Roger was a man of his word, if nothing else. That's right, Detective Hagstrom, and if you need any help with the legwork, I'll gladly offer my services. I'll let you know. He glanced at his watch and said, Why don't you take your pictures so we can get the hell out of here? I'm getting thirsty. Sam looked around the room and said, Fuck it, let's just go. Roger was tempted to rib him, but decided not to. Want to hit the tavern and tie one on? It only took Sam a second to think about it. Lead the way. For more information about the Mayday Murders and other books by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Thanks for listening.